The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and this is episode number 235. Just a reminder before we get into our interview today to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and also give us a good rating so that more people can find our podcast. Also, if you could check us out on YouTube, we've got a YouTube channel by the same name as the podcast, The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. And if you could subscribe to our YouTube channel, give us a thumbs up and also ring the bell. You will be notified when we put up new videos, which is every week, Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So today we have an interview. Now, this is a little bit difficult, difficult, difficult. This is a little bit different because we have been, um, you know, interviewing people who have their own history of drug addiction. And today we're going to be talking to a gentleman named Dr. Stephen Gelfand, and he is a board certified rheumatologist with over 40 years clinical and teaching experience. So he's going to bring a little bit of a different take to our conversation about the opioid pandemic. Let's talk to Dr. Stephen Gelfand. Dr. Gelfand, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and talking to us. You have a different perspective. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I'm glad to be on the podcast and uh, I'm very glad to give you my perspective, which, you know, goes back quite a few years, you know, to my training in the night, you know, starting from the 1960s. And I think it's important for the, you know, for everyone to hear what really went on in medicine, you know, prior to the uh, opioid revolution and the uh, opioid epidemic. I, I completely agree. Do me a favor, just start back with like your background, like where you grew up, how you got into the medical field. What was your goal? What were you, what were you working to do when you were, when you got started? Yeah, well, I always uh, had a um, desire to, to go into medicine and become a doctor. And so, you know, I really went through, uh, you know, traditional uh, medical uh, circles in regard to uh, my medical training. Um, after my medical school, which was at uh, Albany Medical College at Union University, New York, I uh, was a resident uh, in internal medicine at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, and after that, I went into the army for two years, which was during the Vietnam War uh, as an internist uh, and the head of medicine at the US Army Hospital in Redstone Arsenal, Alabama. And then after that, I took a uh, NIH fellowship in rheumatology at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. And um, subsequent uh, to that, I did uh, rheumatology and internal medicine in Southern California for about 20 years. And then after that, I did uh, mostly rheumatology uh, for about 22 years uh, in the South. Okay. So now, Dr. Gelfand, my... just because I'm a slightly bit uneducated, what is rheumatology? What does that mean? Uh, rheumatology is a subspecialty of internal medicine. You have to go through an internal medicine residency before you can become a rheumatologist. 
And rheumatology is, uh, uh, deals with the diagnosis and treatment of um, many uh, types uh, of different types of chronic non-cancer pain, such as arthritis, fibromyalgia, low back pain, you know, all of these conditions uh, which have been mentioned, you know, during the uh, opioid epidemic. So, um, so you're were... like, you're almost like the precursor to like a pain management doctor because yeah, not, you I'm get at the pain... root of pain, right? I'm not a, a pain management doctor, but pain management uh, is an important part of rheumatology. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of aspects to pain management you know, in addition to just medications, which, you know, I'll, I'll talk about in, you know, just a minute or so. Okay. Rheumatology, we, we uh, diagnose and treat different types of arthritis. Uh, we uh, also, uh, also fibromyalgia, which is a very common type of chronic pain, low back pain. And uh, there are a number of conditions that we treat um, in which pain management is one aspect of treatment, such as when we treat rheumatoid arthritis, we have specific drugs that uh, we use that uh, decrease the inflammatory process. And um, even though we do use uh, pain me medicines, particularly NSAID pain medicines, um, and on in very selective cases, we may use opioids. So, I just want to say that I'm not against the use of opioids in very selective cases. <laughs> but they ha it has to be controlled and it can't be Definitely. overprescribed. And I know you're going to talk about that because right. that's basically what we're looking at today. Just out right. of curiosity, have there always been some form of opioid? Has that always been a solution for pain? Well, we, we you know, like I say, we, we have used opioids in certain cases of say patients who are, uh, have very severe arthritis, end stage arthritis, like with bone on bone and are in a lot of pain and have been refractory to other types of conservative treatments and particularly are not, uh, have not had a history of significant substance abuse uh, or significant mental health issues. In those cases, we, you know, we do use opioids, you know, which uh, have been beneficial. But again, the opioids have to be closely monitored, you know. Right, right. And so, you know, but most cases uh, of rheumatology really don't require opioids. And we have a number of other types of treatments uh, that are very effective for reducing pain and improving function. Um, actually, this was uh, brought out in the 1980s um, by uh, the Arthritis Foundation. Um, there was a, um, a particular uh, uh, a doctor, I think she, she was a PhD in nursing uh, at Stanford University, Kate Loring, uh, who uh, developed the Arthritis Foundation self-help programs uh, for both arthritis and fibromyalgia, which incorporated uh, a number of exercises, as well as the importance of uh, stress management. And she developed a, you know, um, Arthritis Foundation self-help program for arthritis, Arthritis Foundation uh, self-help program for fibromyalgia, as well as the PACE exercise program, which is 
people with arthritis can exercise and the aquatic exercise program, which has been very beneficial for many patients with arthritis. So we've been, you know, uh, turning to these. They're really considered what we call self-help, um, multidisciplinary programs, you know, that we can, you know, refer patients for, and they really help in regard to reducing pain and improving function, you know, beyond just what we can do with medications. Uh, understood. So you had obviously years of practice where there were a lot more solutions, if you will, that you were employing besides opioids. What led up to you kind of realizing that maybe there was a situation with opioids? Okay, well, you know, I, to really answer that, I have to go back um, before my training in rheumatology to when I was a medical resident in New York City in the late 60s and early 70s. It was during an earlier heroin epidemic in New York City during the Vietnam War. And um, when I was a medical resident, I was taking care of some of the most complicated cases, medical complications of heroin. And I got and I developed an appreciation of heroin, you know, on both uh, its devastating effects uh, on both the body and the brain. Um, actually, heroin is very similar to morphine. It's actually diacetyl morphine. And it's a semi-synthetic product uh, in which the uh, uh, which is derived from the acetylation of morphine. Morphine is a natural uh, product of opium, you know. So I developed this understanding of what uh, opioids, particularly heroin, can do, and also not only the body but the brain because it can affect so many different areas uh, of the brain in regard to. Uh, pleasure and emotions and pain perception and also breathing during sleep. And, um, you know, later on, this was all experimentally uh, confirmed by the, develop by the discovery of mu opioid receptors, natural opioid receptors in multiple areas of the brain. And also during this time, we were they were developing uh, pilot programs for the use of methadone to treat heroin uh, addiction. Uh, this was in New York City, City when it was just starting. And also interestingly, uh, the FDA in 1971 approved the use of naloxone or Narcan to reverse uh, heroin overdoses. That, did, that, that you, was, did you just say 71? In 71, wow. right. They, they used I had it, no they, idea. I had no idea it's been around right. that long. Sorry. Right. They used it in an IV and IM form. It was later on developed as a, you know, uh, intranasal form. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, all this started in the early 70s, you know. So I really had an appreciation. And like I say, when, once the, uh, you know, opioid revolution started with Oxycontin, I was just, you know, totally taken back by what they were doing, but I'll, you know, I'll get to that in just a, a few minutes. Yep. You know, it's interesting, just an editorial comment on what you say about, you know, heroin and the heroin epidemic. We interviewed a couple years ago, we interviewed the former drug czar of the United States, and he said the same thing. He said, you know, drug addiction epidemic is not new. 
we had heroin and and heroin was a huge epidemic you know this is the yes the whole oxycontin and that form of opioids is now you know in front of everybody's mindset if you will but you know there there was addiction way back then and you bring that up when you consider that uh, even a hundred years before that you know we had uh a um, terrible problem with uh soldiers and veterans becoming addicted to morphine given for pain during the Civil War. And in the early 1900s, we had another heroin epidemic uh, from, um, you know, heroin, which was manufactured as a cough suppressant by Bayer Pharmaceuticals in the early 1900s, which, you know, was then later taken off the market. So we certainly had a background history in, uh, you know, heroin and opioids. Right, exactly. Okay, so now bring it forward from there a little bit. Right, and just one other thing I'd briefly like to mention, during the same period of time as the heroin epidemic, uh, when I was a resident in uh, New York City, we had another drug epidemic, uh, which I'd call the Valium epidemic. Mm. Valium was a minor benzodiazepine tranquilizer, which was unethically marketed uh, for uh, really a number of uh, everyday conditions of tension, stress, and anxiety, especially to American housewives. And the drug, you know, uh, did, uh, can result in uh, dependency and addiction. And this was actually... uh, you know, uh, broadcast by the entertainment industry. I don't know if you're, you may be too young to remember this, but uh, the Rolling Stones had a, uh, uh, a little song called The Mother's, Mother's Little Helper. Yes, and, had- and it was a little pink pill, wasn't it? Right. Wasn't Valium like pink? Right. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. And then they had another, um, uh, you know, there was a movie called Valley of the Dolls, which, you know, referred to yes. the Valium epidemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just... Uh, you know, it's expanding this to how this was marketed. It was marketed by uh, a physician by the name of Arthur Sackler. Arthur Sackler was uh, one of three brothers. I was going to say, why am I not surprised, Dr. Gelfin? Sorry for interrupting, but why am I not surprised that the Sacklers had a hand in the Valium marketing? I will be quiet now. uh, He was one of the, uh, the, the, uh, he had two younger brothers, Mortimer uh, uh, and Raymond. Um, now, uh, they were all psychiatrists, and they all did research at Creedmoor Mental Hospital in Queens, New York. And they certainly understood the effects of substances on the brain, you know. And uh, obviously, when he marketed Valium, I mean, this was what really got it to take off as far as a commercial success because so many, you know, people and particularly women became dependent and addicted to this and went back to their doctors to continue to ask them for continued prescriptions, you know. And so Arthur actually turned from doing psychiatry, he went into medical marketing and medical journalism. And this is where he made his great fortune. And he was actually elected to the Medical Marketing Hall of Fame. And then his younger brothers, Mortimer and Raymond, you know, they subsequently founded uh, Purdue, first Purdue Frederick and then Purdue Farmer. 
And then they use these same marketing techniques to get oxycontin, which is, was an extended release form of oxycodone, another potent opioid off the ground. Uh, that was actually directed by uh, Raymond's son, uh, Richard, Richard Sackler, who was the um, you know, driving force behind, behind the commercial success of oxycontin. You know, so, you know, basically what I'm trying to do, I mean, all this is known. I'm not giving, you know, anybody any new information or giving you an opinion. All this is known. All I'm trying to do is remind people of the past. And I'm trying to clarify this by connecting the dots, which I think we need to all be aware of. I think you're absolutely right. We've had other people talk about Purdue and um, we had a gentleman, an author named Gerald Posner, who went back and researched all of this. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing it up again, because I think most people don't know it. And I think that sometimes there's a lot of attention just on what's happening right now. But it, it's been here for a while. So right, I, like then, it. You know, I like it. Gerald wrote a great book, you know, yes. Farmer. You know, I've corresponded with Gerald. And of course, you know, the more recent book, um, Empire of Pain by... Um, uh, Patrick Radden, uh, you know, Keefe, you yeah. know, uh, basically the history of the Sacklers. But there were other books, uh, uh, Dope Sip uh, by uh, Beth Macy. And, uh, you know, um, she was, uh, that's the um, uh, book that's going to be on Hulu, you know, uh, when uh, that series starts next month. Yeah. And there's multiple other books uh, that have been written. Uh, Dreamland by Sam uh, Quiones and Bad Medicine by Charlotte Bismuth. And I corresponded with all of them. So yeah. a lot of it, uh, they really helped in really, so, you know, solidifying and connecting all these events. Yep. Okay. So you had the Sacklers marketing Valium and then bring us forward from there. Okay, so this is, um, you know, after um, I, I, I spoke about the Arthritis Foundation programs in the 1980s that we were, you know, and then in the 1990s, there was also um, a movement uh, in uh, what we refer to as mind-body therapies, which were uh, really devised uh, to reduce stress by a variety of relaxation techniques, which can include meditation. And there were multiple books written in the 1990s about this uh, by some famous physicians. Actually, I just mentioned two, uh, Herbert Benson, who was a cardiologist uh, at Harvard University and established later established the Mind-Body Medical Institute at Harvard. And then there was John Sarnow, uh, who was head of physical medicine at uh, NYU, and then they wrote, you know, they wrote books on this, and this also helped in regard to the importance of uh, incorporating patients in these uh, in this area. You know, uh, reducing stress became a important part of what we call mind and muscle movement management. In other words, we pay attention to the mind through education, through stress reduction with relaxation. To, for behavioral techniques, such as the use of cognitive behavioral therapy, maybe psychological counseling and those who need it, and a variety of exercises, which can actually be started by, say, a physical therapist. And, um, you know, usually a comprehensive exercise 
uh, utilizing stretching, strengthening, aerobics. Uh, and all of this is very important in the you know, general management of patients with uh, chronic pain. Interesting. So, so it's not, so it doesn't have to be a pill every time. Right. So this is another thing that, you know, uh, we, um, what was, uh, was very well known in the, in the 1990s. Um, and, um, you know, and then, you know, here we are uh, in 1995 when Oxycontin was first approved by the uh, FDA and uh, it was really hard for me to believe what, what they were saying. There were, you know, multiple false claims were made by Purdue Pharma that it was safer than other opioids with, with a much lower rate of addiction, while uh, it's effective for chronic pain long term, uh, whereas most of the research studies were less than three months for conditions which were chronic. And unfortunately, the medical community bought into these false claims and, um, you know, they uh, broadly and non-selectively started to uh, prescribe uh, Oxycontin and other opioids as well. You know, it was really an easier and timely way of treating patients with complex chronic pain conditions. You know, just give them a prescription rather than you know, talk to them about all these other issues that may be going on. Yep. And I believe you mentioned that that kind of created some conflicts for what you were doing as a rheumatologist um, and the primary care because you knew more. Right. It did. It was like I was the odd man out. I was trying to, um, you know, uh, uh, I did a lot of consultations for primary care doctors and uh, I saw a lot of these patients who were dependent or addicted to opioids. And when I send them their consultations back with a recommendation that, you know, that they either try to taper patients off these drugs or get them into addiction treatment program, uh, they weren't too happy with that, to tell you the truth. So it resulted in me changing a number of practices th- throughout the years, you know. And then I'd also just like to say that, you know, with all the... Um, Oxycontin that were uh, was flooding, uh, you know, uh, the uh, community. It was uh, uh, getting into uh, multiple medical cabinets and into the streets. And it, and as you know, it became an easy method for teenagers and you know young adults, um, you know, to get their hands on it and to either experiment or take it for uh, recreational use. You know, thinking that it was safe because it was prescribed. And of course, this contributed to the mounting toll uh, of addiction and death, which uh, we all, you know, are, are familiar with. And um, the other issue was that there was a, 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 an increased frequency of mental health conditions in many patients with chronic pain, particularly in rheumatology, in this con- common condition called fibromyalgia, and as well as non-structural low back pain, and the mental health conditions themselves can, you know, particularly depression, anxiety, PTSD, they can generate and they can amplify, you know, chronic pain. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 
7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Well, we know that emotional distress you know, can have uh, physical or somatic correlates and Oxycontin and other opioids were being prescribed for these kind of patients with, uh, you know, uh, with disastrous results in many, many uh, cases because patients who with these mental issues are very prone to become addicted and, uh, and to overdose, you know, right. so, so th- this was the background. And then, you know, and then uh, my, other experience was when I first started a rheumatology practice in Myrtle Beach in 2001. Okay. So, uh, I had um, joined a, a group in rheumatology. And when I when we came into Myrtle Beach, um, we became very aware of a practice called the Comprehensive Pain Clinic, which was actually one of the first pill mills in the nation. You know, which was in Myrtle Beach, and the doctors in that group who believed they believed they were doing the right thing, but they were dishing out oxycontin and other opioids to just anybody who walked through the doors and complained of pain. And this was actually attracting many uh, people with a with addiction from various uh, adjoining adjoining states, you know, around the. Uh, that area of South Carolina. And, well, yeah, uh, because Florida became number one in terms yeah. of pill mills. Right. That was a, this was actually before the Florida pill mills. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. when I first came into Myrtle Beach, one of the first things we noticed, my wife and I, was when our realtor was located in the same strip mall as this comprehensive pain clinic. And we basically had to fight our way through all these people who were just hanging around a strip mall between the cars, you know, just waiting to get in. So we knew right away that this was a problem. And this was actually um, exposed publicly by an article in the New York Times at the time by um, uh, Barry Meyer, who was a journalist. And he wrote about this comprehensive pain clinic and also the uh, Purdue drug rep who was uh, promoting uh, OxyContin uh, to all the doctors uh, in the community. And uh, actually this drug rep became the highest uh, OxyContin salesman in the nation, you know. And I had an experience that he came into my office one time and he was trying to convince me to prescribe OxyContin for my patients with fibromyalgia. And I automatically knew he didn't know what he was talking about and I dismissed him and I never uh, vowed never to see a Purdue drug rep again. But I thought that other people would 
you know, other doctors would feel the same way, but obviously they, they didn't. Right. And so they played right into this. And so, you know, this had a, you know, a big effect on what was going on. And I actually wrote a uh, commentary in 2002, which appeared in um, Medscape Rheumatology, which talked about the dangers of prescribing opioids, especially for, you know, chronic pain uh, related to conditions like fibromyalgia and mental health issues. In 2002, and you wrote that. This was 2002, right. And then I, I wrote uh, a number of articles for the local paper and the health magazines. And then I, over the years, I've written uh, multiple other medical publications. And uh, I also wrote letters to the FDA and uh, also to two federal judges uh, in regard to the uh, trial, the two trials of Purdue. And um, uh, then I, you know, I made contact with a number of, uh, I became a medical advisor actually for a number of uh, citizen advocacy individuals and groups. You know, and this goes back 15, 20 years ago. And I can't list all of them here, but some of the early ones included Ed Bish, who, you know, you interviewed. He's been on the podcast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, um, uh, you know, uh, he, de he devised oxyabuse.com, which posted those tragic stories of so many people with their experiences with Oxycontin. And then he also, you know, formed uh, RAP or Relatives uh, Against Purdue Farmer. And other ones included the uh, Van Ruyens from California, Barbara and Kirk, who uh, wrote the uh, uh, an FDA citizens petition in 2005, trying to restrict the use of OxyContin uh, just to severe pain and not to moderate pain, which the FDA stonewalled. I contributed to that um, uh, to that uh, petition. Uh, and also others my, that I'll just mention is Pete Jackson and Ada Thompson of ARPO, which was the um, um, advocates for the reform of prescription opioids, and Larry Goldblum, uh, who um, was the host of Prescription Addiction Radio, which I uh, appeared on uh, a number of times. And there were multiple others. And then through this advocacy group, they introduced me to Andrew Kolodny, who was very uh, interested in this area. He was an addiction psychiatrist in New York, and he was one of the uh, co-founders of PROP, um, which was, um, you know, of PROP, which was a physician for responsible opioid prescribing, which I became an original member of. I was just going to ask you to tell us about PROP and how that yeah. came about. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, through this group, I, you know, I uh, met um, uh, Andrew Kolodny and, you know, it was devised uh, first, you know, to educate uh, 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 physicians because we felt that uh, physicians, you know, needed this education in regard to, um, you know, uh, this problem uh, with opioids. Um, and it's, and I'm just going to say the name of it. It is it is physicians for, for responsible, responsible opioid, opioid prescribing. prescribing. And they, 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 they uh, had a lot of, uh, we've had a lot of positive uh, accomplishments uh, over the years. Uh, in addition to, you know, um, education of physicians, uh, public and government approaches, they've contributed to legislation. 
you know, such as the upscheduling of hydrocodone combination products and, um, you know, expanding addiction treatment for the use of buprenorphine, expanding the use of naloxone, you know, revising the pain management standards of the Joint Commission and CMS, which actually encouraged opioid overprescribing. And they also contributed to the 2016 CDC guideline, uh, primarily for uh, primary care physicians, uh, which emphasized, you know, uh, a um, different perspective in regard to the treatment of chronic non-cancer pain, you know, uh, particularly from a biopsychosocial perspective, and particularly in opioid-naive patients who had not started on uh, OxyContin. And this had a lot of similarities to some of the things that I was uh, very well aware of uh, earlier on in regard to mind and muscle uh, you know, multidisciplinary management, which uh, did not involve, you know, specific drugs. Uh, so all these things were important that uh, they were involved in. And they also uh, had um, uh, the guideline also contained uh, gradual tapering guidelines for uh, OxyContin, a reduction of high opioid dosages, and uh, a shorter duration of opioid treatment for acute pain. Well, some of this was controversial because there were, you know, many, um, particularly primary care doctors, uh, misinterpreted these guidelines. And then they had these patients who were dependent on opioids and they too rapidly tapered them off opioids, resulting in withdrawal reactions. And, um, you know, that became a major, you know, bone of contention, but the guideline never suggested rapid, rapid tapering. They suggested gradual tapering and also the use of buprenorphine, you know, and, uh, you know, a referral for addiction treatment as well. Right. So how big is PROP now, Dr. Gelfand? Has it grown a lot? Well, it, it contains a, a number of, uh, of physicians. Uh, I'm not active in it, you know, anymore. I was active in it for about 10 years. It contains a number of uh, experts, you know, from around the country, um, including Jane Ballantyne, who was one of the you know, first pain management uh, physicians in the country uh, that, uh, you know, started to warn, uh, you know, about the um, excessive use of opioids, you know, for chronic pain. And, right. you know, she's written a lot of articles. And um, we also have um, uh, other experts, you know, nationally. And there was uh, a number, uh, a couple of doctors from Canada as well. And so it's... Uh, I think it's been one physician group that has been, you know, a uh, an answer to some of the opioid uh, overprescribing that's that's gone on. Uh, you know, it's it's been the the object of a lot of uh, ne negativity. I was going to say, I'm sure that you have run into the teeth yeah. of uh, yeah. some and, vested uh, yeah. interest. Like, um, right. did you did you mention something about the AMA not being? Super yeah, with you? well, you know what, um, you know, the AMA had been, uh, you know, they recently came out with, you know, they have highlighted the fact, and uh, this is well known, that more recently, like from 2011 to 2020, there's been a 40% reduction in physician opioid prescribing, you know, okay. uh, which was good. And there's also been an increased use of the state uh, 
PDMPs or prescription drug monitoring programs since 2014, there's been a marginal increase in prescriptions, you know, for buprenorphine and naloxone, although uh, almost 4 million doses of naloxone have been distributed, you know, by harm reduction and other community-based uh, organizations. And they've advocated for improved care for patients with pain, mental illness, and substance abuse disorders, you know. However, they have really, in my you know, opinion, they have really downplayed the role of physician overprescribing hmm. in causing opioid addiction and overdose deaths, and appear to be more concerned with providing access to opioids and elimination of the opioid dosage thresholds of the 2016 CDC guidelines, you know, and they've said they said absolutely nothing about iatrogenic addiction as the important link to uh, illicit fentanyl deaths, which we have a, a horrific problem of going on right now. And, um, you know, that's, um, you know, um, uh, and they've also been um, uh, not really done hardly anything in the importance of what I mentioned before of diagnosing and differentiating between the different types of chronic non-cancer pain, which has always been a problem for many primary care physicians, you know. And, uh, you know, these are the common types of pain that respond to non-opioid multidisciplinary management as first-line therapy, which, you know, I previously discussed and which have been, you know, recommended by the you know, CDC guideline, you know. So, you know, the other thing I remember is that, you know, about over 10 years ago, the AMA was running full page ads for uh, OxyContin in uh, the AMA news, you know, I mean, for, for months, you know. Wow. So, and this was about 10, year, 10 years ago. Wow. So, that, that, wow. So, you know, I think it's a two-edged sword, but I don't think the problem with the AMA is that they haven't really you know, you know, we haven't really dealt with some of the important issues that I just mentioned as far as, you know, the, the link of prescription opioids to illicit heroin and fentanyl. I mean, we know that this, this was, um, this is well established that four out of five uh, heroin addicts first started with prescription opioids. And right. so they really have tried to say away, they try to separate both a prescription opioid and the illicit opioid uh, epidemics. And they really haven't done hardly anything as far as trying to encourage doctors to learn more about chronic non-cancer pain. It is so, um, difficult, I think, um, to look at oneself and what you know oneself might be responsible for. And that is likely what you know, happens there. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, like yep. I say, it's a, uh, you know, it's been a problem. Um, yep. It's just, you know, one other thing I, I did want to mention, you know, uh, you know, before we, uh, uh, before we go is I just wanted to, you know, say something about the false claims in the marketing of Oxycontin that were made by Purdue Pharma, you know, and this is a, a very important because they made a whole series of false claims, you know, that, you know, changed medical beliefs and practices and got, got doctors to over-prescribing 
you know, opioids for many mm -hmm. patients, which actually ignited the opioid epidemic. Yep. And some of these included like the false claim that uh, opioid addiction is rare in chronic pain patients, which was not true. There's often a close relationship between pain and addiction and pain can be very complex and have psychosocial correlates and, you know, psychological, you know, um, uh, you know, aspects. Um, and this actually, what it did was it, you know, is it encouraged uh, doctors to ignore addiction and just concentrate on chronic pain and to continue opioid prescribing where a lot of patients really needed to be referred for addiction treatment. And, you know, Purdue Pharma and its many opioid advocate, advocates, including the FDA, they grossly oversimplified chronic pain. They often lumped both uh, cancer pain and chronic non-cancer pain together uh, while they downplayed and limited the definition and the spectrum of addiction. And actually, you know, the frequency of addiction, another term for it has been used has been opioid use disorder. You know, I mean, that was brought out a few years ago in studies from the Geisinger Clinic in Pennsylvania, where they found that there was an over 40% lifetime incidence of opioid use disorder of varying degrees in chronic pain patients on chronic opioid therapy. And so this was, you know, uh, already, you know, this was already brought out in the, uh, in, 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 in research studies. And the other thing was that, you know, and I'm sure you've heard about this, there was a tendency to blame the victim for addiction, which started with, uh, you know, what Richard Sackler was telling his drug reps. Uh, they didn't Purdue. use it properly. They didn't use the drug properly. And they said, you know, and then they actually called them if they say anybody who took Oxycontin with chronic pain and became addicted, he said they were nothing but reckless criminals. And this was all uh, very well uh, documented by you know, um, uh, particularly in, in some of these books and also by uh, the Attorney General of uh, the Commonwealth of uh, Massachusetts in her complaint. So this is, a, this is a, a important to realize. The other thing that they stated was that, that opioids were safe and effective for chronic pain and are the gold standard, you know. Now this was something that there was no evidence for that in the medical literature that I reviewed this subject, you know, back in 2006, and I, there was no evidence, there was actually a lack of evidence of long-term safety and effectiveness for opioids and chronic non-cancer pain. And I actually debated this with <laughs> a uh, leading proponent of opioids, a Dr. Scott Fishman, who was director of uh, pain management at the University of California, Davis. And I brought up all these, you know, studies which did not show what he was claiming uh, as gold standard. And uh, the the same uh, approach was later reached a few years later. Uh, it was uh, updated in a 2015 systemic review from the NIH and the Annals of Internal Medicine, which were then incorporated into the 2016 CDC guideline. So that was another big. Um, uh, mistruth that was being circulated in the medical community. Also, opioid therapy can be easily discontinued, you know, which was not not true. And there was, of course, you've probably heard about 
you know, opioid, opiophobia and pseudo addiction concepts, which did nothing more than encourage physician over prescribing and uh, also raising opioid dosages to dangerous levels. So all of these things were, you know, uh, were major uh, areas that were being broadcast to the medical community during, particularly during these early years, which, uh, you know, got the uh, opioid epidemic, uh, you know, uh, ignited and, uh, and subsequently exploded, you know. Yep. I think I think we can agree that the uh, marketing practices of the Sackler family were unethical at best, and that um, there is there should be um, what's the word they should there should be penal penalization on the family as well as the executives of the company, and whether we will see that or not. Remains to be seen, but it it is obvious, I think, to us here at the podcast and to probably anybody who's listened to this podcast that um, they are responsible. The Sacklers are responsible. Um, I didn't realize they were responsible for the Valium epidemic, but there you go. So they've this has been their practice for decades, and um, yeah, I think I mean I think the common thread is that they were dealing with you know, drugs which were psychoactive and could lead to dependency and addiction. You know, like I said before, they affected the brain, you know. Yep. And But this was their uh, ticket to tremendous commercial success. Yep. Which is how they made their fortune, basically. Yep. They knew it and they profited off of it and therefore they should be penalized for that, as I say, whether they will or not. I don't know. Dr. Gelfand, I really appreciate all of the work that you've done. If someone wanted to contact you and, you know, either get you on their podcast or um, maybe get you to write something for them, how would they do that? Well, the best thing is just email. You know, you can email me. It's, you know, uh, sgelfand42 uh, at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure, and I hope that people listening got something out of this. I am sure they did. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening with us today. I hope that you got something out of, out of Dr. Gelfand's interview. He has been around uh this whole addiction pandemic for decades. And I had, I personally had no idea that Valium was an epidemic. I remember, I obviously knew about Valium, um, obviously knew about heroin in Vietnam and what occurred there, but um, had no idea about Valium. Also had no idea that Richard Sackler was uh, responsible for the Valium epidemic. And I wish I could tell you that I'm surprised, but I'm not. They are a family who has profited on this whole addiction pandemic and they have protected their profits. And I wonder how they sleep at night. But that's our interview for today. And we'll be back again next week with another interview. So please join us again. And if you or someone you know needs treatment, please reach out. Don't wait, it's not gonna go away on its own. You have to actually do something about it. Have a good one.
You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.